Thanks so much for being with us here in person and online as we continue our mini-series within Matthew's Gospel on the topic of hypocrisy, okay? It's week two of our mini-series on the topic of hypocrisy. Our text today is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15, and in these verses, Jesus addresses hypocrisy in praying. So last week was about hypocrisy in giving. Uh, next week is about hypocrisy in fasting, but today is about hypocrisy in praying. Now, if you're joining us for the first time today, to be a hypocrite means to be an actor. An actor is someone who puts on a show. Maybe you went and saw Top Gun Part 2, all right? Well, Tom Cruise is not actually a fighter pilot. He's a pilot, but not a fighter pilot. He's an actor putting on a show. He's putting on a performance. And that's what it literally means to be a hypocrite, to be an actor putting on a show. And when it comes to our religious acts of devotion, there's always going to be a temptation to do them in order to put on a show for other people, to do them to impress other people, to do them to garner other people's applause and praise, to do them so that other people view you as a really spiritual person instead of doing them for the right reason, which is as an act of devotion to God, uh, doing them to express your love for God. And it's so amazing how this was not just an issue in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago. It's an issue in our day, too. As Solomon put it, there's nothing new under the sun. The way it looks today, it's different, but it's still an issue. The company Uversion has put out the Bible app, the most popular Bible app in the world. It's on at least 500 million unique devices across the country and around the world, including many of our devices here. Now, in case you don't know about the app, they made the app kind of like Facebook and Instagram, but for your daily quiet time. In other words, there's a social dimension to it where you can share about your quiet time the same way you might take a picture of your lunch and post it to Instagram or Facebook. You say, why do people do that? I don't know, but that's what they do. So when you finish day 7 or 12 or 30 of your reading plan, you can make a post about it to like let others know that you've done that. Or if you complete the one-year Bible reading plan or whatever it is, you can make a post about it to let others know that you've done that. Or if you like a certain verse that you read in your daily quiet time that day, you can make a post to let others know. And then your friends can like or comment on whatever it is you've posted so that you can get positive affirmation for having connected with God. Now, just to be clear, don't misunderstand me today, there is nothing inherently wrong with using the social aspect of that app. Maybe you use it and it's this very spiritually enriching thing, and for you, you're doing it with the right reasons. It's not so others can think highly of you and applaud your uh, devoted spirituality. For you, it's just a great way to be held accountable to have a daily quiet time, and it doesn't mess with, you know, your motives and all that kind of stuff. If that's you, wonderful. But what I do want to say today is this. There's a great danger in making your quiet time uh, social. The danger, of course, is that it becomes possible to make your posts for the likes or comments or to make the posts in order to impress other people with your uh, devoted spirituality. 
And if that's the case, if you're making posts for others and not God, then what are you doing? You're putting on a show. You're an actor. You're pretending to do it for God, but in reality, you're doing it for others. In other words, you're practicing hypocrisy. Well, friends, this is the very thing that Jesus addresses in our text today. Doing our religious acts of devotion for others instead of for God. And whereas last week Jesus focused on giving, and whereas next week he's going to focus on fasting, today he's focusing in on prayer, specifically hypocrisy in praying. Now, normally I would read you the entire passage, but today the passage is kind of long, and so what we're going to do today is just we're going to cover the passage section by section. Let's dive in. Man, it is, it is quiet in here today. It is quiet in here today. All right. If you're taking notes, the first thing that we see in our passage is this. We're going to call it the perversion of prayer. The perversion of prayer. And we see this in verses 5 to 8, where Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Uh, Some translations here say, do not use vain repetition like the heathens. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Friends, here's the deal. Prayer, much like the giving of alms, the giving to help the poor that we talked about last week, prayer had become corrupted. Prayer, like the giving of alms, was a central part of Jewish life and culture, but it became corrupted. People started doing it in order to show off versus in order to connect in a meaningful way with God the Father. So they just perverted prayer, and here's how they did it. To help the people pray, the rabbis would give the people written prayers to recite throughout the day. One of those prayers was called the Shema, and this was a prayer that was comprised of three short passages of Scripture, uh, one from Deuteronomy 6, one from Deuteronomy 11, and one from Numbers chapter 15. And this prayer was uh, required to be recited uh, each morning before 9 a.m. and each evening before 9 p.m. Now, the second prayer that had to be repeated daily was called the Shemina Ezra, which means the eighteen because it was comprised of 18 short prayers. And these 18 prayers had to be recited each morning, each afternoon, and each evening. So friends, that's 19 prayers each morning, 18 prayers each afternoon, and 19 more prayers each evening. Okay, that's 56 prayers a day. Now here's the deal. When the set time for prayer came, it didn't matter where you were or what you were doing, regardless, you were supposed to stop and pray. Well, the religious leaders and many of the Jews who were following their bad example started to make sure that they were in the middle of a busy street corner or smack dab in the middle of a bustling synagogue when the time of prayer came. 
so that they could perform as actors for others. It wasn't about God. It was about doing their acts of religious devotion before men in order to be praised by them in the same way that many of us do with the Bible app today. So Jesus comes along and he says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. So you see, friends, they perverted prayer because they were doing it for show. And we're never to perform our religious acts of devotion to God for a show for other people. But not only were they praying for show, they also perverted prayer by praying mindlessly. And this is not hard to imagine, right? With 56 prayers to recite every day, some people just wanted to do it as quick as they could. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I did it. And they said, religious duty fulfilled. Prayer is done. And they just check it off the list and move on. Though some people loved saying these prayers and recited them with sincere devotion, most people just started mindlessly repeating them so they could say they checked prayer off their to-do list. And so Jesus came on the scene and he taught his disciples this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. When you pray, do not use vain repetition. Jesus taught his disciples, in other words, that praying mindlessly was vain. Do you know what vain means? In this context, it means useless. What kind of effect can we expect prayer to have when we pray mindlessly, when we disengage our mind and our heart? Now, we can do this in worship or in prayer. Have you ever just, you know, you prayed, you know, Jesus, I give you my all and whatever. And like, he doesn't have even a tiny part of us, but we're, oh, give you my all. And like, we just pray or sing these things and they're not true. Or maybe we're singing something and we have no idea what it means, but we're singing it. It's mindless. So whether it's our worship or our praying, God wants our hearts and our minds engaged. And if they're not, he says our praying is vain, which means useless. So do you see the perversion of prayer? They were praying for show, and they were praying mindlessly. And Jesus says, oh my goodness, what did you guys do to this beautiful religious act of devotion called prayer? You've completely corrupted it. And because of the perversion of prayer, Jesus goes ahead, number two, the second thing we see in our text, Jesus goes ahead and gives to the people the program of prayer. They had perverted it. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you the program of prayer so that you can do it not just with the right motive, but also in the right manner. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were not setting the right example. So Jesus told the people this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 8. Jesus says, do not be like them. Them referring to the religious leaders who were doing things for the wrong motive and in the wrong manner. And after saying, don't be like them, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. He says, don't be like them. Instead, pray then like this. And then Jesus gives them a prayer. But here's the deal. He really doesn't give them or us, by way of extension, a prayer to pray as much as he gives us a program for prayer. It's like this. Several years back, not because I love the symphony, but because I love my wife, 
I got tickets to the symphony. We went to see Messiah's, uh, Handel's Messiah in Worcester, and, and I brought her there for Christmas because it was something she wanted to do. Not something I wanted to do, something she wanted to do. And as is the case at any symphony, they give you a program so that you have an outline of what's to come. And so people like me know how close we are to leaving. But here's the deal. The program that they give out, the program, is not the symphony. Think about it. The program is not the symphony. The program is the outline of the symphony. And in the same way, what Jesus gives here, gives to us here in verses 6 to 13, it's not the prayer we're to pray. It's the outline of the prayer we're supposed to pray. It's not to be memorized and repeated mindlessly. No, its intended purpose is so that we would have something to guide us through a meaningful time of prayer with God. So understand, Jesus is giving us the program of prayer. Now, the question begs, what's contained in the program? And that's what we get into next in the third thing we see in our text, which we're going to call the petitions of prayer. So first we have the perversion of prayer. Then we looked at the program of prayer. And now we're looking, thirdly, at the petitions of prayer. The program of prayer that Jesus gave to us is comprised of seven petitions, seven different things that we're supposed to request of God each time we come to him in prayer. And we see these seven petitions in verses 6 to 13, where Jesus instructs us to pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here we have seven petitions, seven requests that Jesus gives to us to approach God with when we pray. Here's the first. Jesus says, here's the first petition you're to make. Hallowed be your name. Now, we don't use the word hallowed in our uh, modern day vocabulary here in America. All right. It's an old English word. It's not something we use. So we say, what in the world does that mean? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What am I praying when I pray that? Well, friends, just do this. Think every time you think of the word hallowed, just go ahead and think of the word um, honored. When we pray, God, hallowed be your name, we're really praying, God, may you be honored in my life. You see on the TV shows, a court scene, and as the judge walks in, the bailiff calls out, all rise for the honorable judge so-and-so. And what the bailiff is saying is this, by virtue of his office, the judge is worthy of honor. So everyone go ahead and rise in his or her presence. Well, friends, in the same way, by virtue of his office in being the one who created the heavens and the earth, he, God, is worthy of honor. And when we pray, God, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God would be honored in our lives. 
The Apostle Paul instructed the believers at Corinth as follows in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Paul told them, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is what it means to hallow God's name. Do everything we do in order to bring glory to him. So this petition then is, God, may you be honored by my life, by all I think, by all I do, by all I say. And that's our prayer. And what a great way for prayer to begin. God, I just, the first thing I ask is not anything for me. God, the first thing I ask is something related to you. God, I just pray that you would be honored in everything I think today and everything I do today and everything I say today. God, when that person on the road is just irking my ever-loving last nerve, when that person at work is getting under my skin, uh, when I'm, you know, needing to be patient with my spouse or my children, you know, all these practical examples, God, my prayer today is this, may you be honored in everything I think and everything I say and everything I do. Number two, here's the second petition Jesus says we're to pray. Jesus says, pray like this, Father, your kingdom come. Now, this is confusing for some people because we always talk about uh, Jesus ruling over his eternal kingdom. But don't be confused. It is God the Father's kingdom, and he has appointed Jesus, his son, to rule and reign over that kingdom for all eternity. So sometimes in Scripture you see it's the kingdom of Christ, it's the kingdom of God the Father. Uh, these things are not uh, contradicting each other in any way. It is the kingdom of God, and he has appointed Jesus to rule and reign over it for all eternity. Now let's go ahead and pull up our biblical events timeline to refresh your memory on where this event fits in biblical history. When Jesus will begin ruling and reigning over that eternal kingdom that God the Father has appointed him to rule over forever. On the far left, we have the first coming of Christ. And this is where Jesus came to earth to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Then, of course, you have the church age. And this is the age that you and I are living in right now. This age will come to an end with the rapture of the church when Jesus comes to get us, to bring us to heaven, to be with him forever. This lays the foundation for Antichrist to come on the scene for the seven-year period known as the tribulation. And it's during this time that the Holy Trinity fights against the unholy trinity. This war culminates in the second coming of Christ where Jesus returns to the earth for a second time, not to suffer and die, rather to overthrow the kingdom of Antichrist in the battle of Armageddon so that he can set up his own kingdom and begin ruling. Now, the first part of this kingdom takes place on earth, here on earth, for a period of 1,000 years and is hence known as Christ's millennial, meaning thousand-year reign. And after this, there's one final battle against Satan. Spoiler alert, Satan loses. And his defeat is followed by the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus' kingdom that started here on earth for a thousand years, it just relocates to the new heavens and the new earth where Jesus rules and reigns forever. Now, I know that was a lot, and don't worry, it's not on the test. But I said all that to say this, when we pray, God, your kingdom come. We're praying, God, would you please hasten the day where Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords and, and begins to reign over his kingdom forever. 
And it's a beautiful prayer to pray because think about how messed up the world is that we live in. We've tried every form of government, monarchy, democracy, every other kind, you know, like all these, and all of them have failed and the world's a mess. And that's because we live in a world that's been corrupted by sin. So what a beautiful prayer that we pray when we ask God to hasten the day where Christ's kingdom is inaugurated and he begins to rule and he brings justice to the nations. Oh, I love praying that prayer. I love praying it for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I love praying that prayer is because for me, it's my daily reorientation to the purposes of God. Here's the straight and narrow path that we're all supposed to walk down. And here's what I do. Every, I don't know about you, but here's what I do every single day. Just, whoop, just kind of veer. And then every day I pray, God, I pray that your kingdom come. And it just realigns me. It teaches me on a daily basis. It reminds me on a daily basis that all of history is marching towards the time when Christ will rule and reign. And it just kind of gets me focused. I can get so caught up in the things of this life. I can get so distracted by this and that and the other. And then I pray, God, your kingdom come. And it reminds me that I need to give my life in service of the kingdom today. And I need to work as hard as I can with God's help, of course, not trusting in my own strength or power, but I want to labor hard to help other people come to know Jesus so they can be citizens in that kingdom and we can all live together forever under the righteous rule of Jesus. It's a, it's a wonderful prayer to pray. I hope you're praying it. Number three, here's the third petition Jesus says we're to pray. He says, pray like this, Father, your will be done. We often come to prayer under the mistaken assumption that its purpose is that God would do our will. But it's exactly the opposite. The purpose of prayer is not to get our will done, it's to get God's will done. We see a wonderful example of this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, here's how he prayed. My father, if it is possible, may this cup, meaning the cup of suffering that he was about to endure on the cross, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus wasn't trying to get God to be where Jesus wanted him to be. Jesus prayed for this purpose, that he might get to where God wanted him to be. And friends, that's the purpose of prayer. The primary purpose of prayer is to accomplish God's will, not our own. And this, I believe, by and large, is the answer to the mystery of unanswered prayer. Many times we don't pray in accordance with God's will revealed to us in the scriptures, and that's why our prayer isn't answered. As the Apostle James puts it in James chapter 4, verse 3, James says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Many times our prayers aren't answered because our motive is our will and our glory, not God's. But when we pray, we ought to pray that God's will should be done on this earth. And that ought to be the number one heart desire of every true disciple of Jesus. Have you ever gone to work and noticed your boss has a will and you have a will? And have you noticed that they're different oftentimes? How many of you have children? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Great. Have you ever noticed that you as the parent have a will and that your child has a will of their own? And that often these are two very different wills? Well, here's the deal. God has a will and we have a will. And often they are two different wills. 
And many times we approach God in prayer saying, God, please, you do my will. And God's trying to get each of us to the place where the number one thing we would desire with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, is that his will would be done. And so this is just a great time each day to pray, God, it's about your will. It's not about my will. It's not, it's not about my kingdom. It's about your kingdom. And it's not about my will. It's about your will be done. Here's the fourth petition that we're to pray. Jesus says, pray like this, Father, give us bread. And no, this is not a demand uh, of God, despite how it might sound, but this is asking God to provide for our needs. We need food to live, so bread represents a need in our lives. And we're invited to share our needs as well as the needs of those who are near and dear to us with God. Hence, give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. So we pray for God would meet our needs and we pray that he would meet the needs of those who are near and dear to our heart. But friends, we have to be careful not to confuse needs and wants. We might want a vacation in Hawaii. Amen? <laughs> we may want to win the lottery. We may want an even bigger house than the home we already have. But friends, these are wants, not needs. People often mistakenly conclude that God doesn't answer prayer, but the issue isn't that God has failed to keep his promise to answer prayer. The issue is that we have approached God with a want, not a need. Friends, the invitation here, just to be clear, is not for us to approach God as if he's our personal genie granting all our wishes, making all our dreams come true. We are to approach God and ask him humbly to meet our needs, not all our wants, not all our desires. Maybe you need wisdom at work, or maybe you need clear direction from God concerning an important family decision. Or maybe you need to find a job or a spouse, or maybe you have a friend or family member who needs physical healing, or, or maybe the need is financial. There needs to be financial provision or disaster uh, will ensue. Well, if you're a child of God, and if you seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness as the first and foremost thing and, and first and foremost priority of your life, then you can count on God to meet that need. But friends, it's conditional as is our forgiveness, which we'll see shortly uh, in our next point. But it's conditional. If we're a child of God, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then we can count on him for our needs. But we must never confuse a need with a want. Here's the fifth petition that we're to pray. Jesus says, pray like this. Father, forgive our debts. Now here, Jesus is referring to sin. Forgive us our sin. It's referred to here as a debt because our sin actually brings us into a, a spiritual indebtedness before God. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. He paid the ransom uh, to set us free from our sin debt. So forgive us our debts just means forgive us of our sins. And forgiveness of sins, I don't know about you, this is something I need on a daily basis. James chapter 3 verse 2 says this. The Apostle James writes, we all stumble in many ways. And stumble here means sin. We all sin in, in many ways. And that's why we need daily doses of 
forgiveness. I know some of you are arguing with me in your mind right now saying, I don't sin every single day. Maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but not not every single day. But here's the reason that we sometimes mistakenly think we haven't sinned. We sometimes mistakenly think this because we only take into account sins of commission and fail to take into account sins of omission. Sins of commission are when we do those bad things that the Bible says we ought not to do. But sins of omission are when we fail to do the good things the Bible says we ought to do. Some people get to the end of the day and they say, the Bible says thou shalt not murder, and I haven't killed anyone today. I wanted to kill a couple people, but I didn't. I haven't sinned. But God's looking down from heaven going, what about the sins of omission? What about doing our religious acts of devotion before God? Uh, What about helping the poor? What about living with patience and kindness, which is the biblical definition of love? What about demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and all the other good things that Christians ought to do? What about this one? Sharing your faith. Jesus says, if you are my disciple, go into all the world and preach, meaning proclaim the good news about Jesus. Don't get to the end of the day and say, I haven't sinned, I haven't murdered anyone. Get to the end of the day and say, what about my sins of omission? Is there anything good I ought to have done but didn't do? Father, forgive me my debts. Now, real quick, when we ask God for forgiveness of sin, God is clear that we can count on his forgiveness. As the apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, he'll forgive us of our sins, and he'll cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But here's the deal. That promise is conditional. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. Jesus says, if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your heavenly Father will not forgive your sins. So we can count on God forgiving us our sins when we ask him to, so long as we are not harboring unforgiveness in our hearts when someone's coming to us saying, please forgive me of my shortcomings, we need to forgive them. Because if we don't, God says, I won't forgive you. All right, here's the sixth petition that we're to pray. Jesus says, pray like this. God, I just pray, would you lead me not into temptation? Now, there's a lot of confusion on this, right? Because James chapter 1, verse 3 says that God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So we certainly aren't being instructed by Jesus to pray that God, would, that God wouldn't do something he would never do. That's not what's going on here. When we pray, lead us not into temptation, what we're praying is that God would give us wisdom to avoid temptation. Remember back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, hey, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And what he was saying is you need to take drastic measures to cut out of your life any tempting influence that you actually have control over. And when we pray, God, lead us not into temptation, we're praying that God would help us and give us wisdom to identify those areas of temptation that we do have control over and that we therefore can cut out of our lives. I mean, think about it. In large part, we get to choose what's around us, do we not? I mean, we get to choose where we go, what we do, what we watch, what we read, the company we keep, so on and so forth. 
And if we have any sources of temptation in our life that we have control over, we should cut them out. But man, we, sometimes we have to go ahead and pray and ask God for help with this. Now, some people think God doesn't answer prayer, but let me encourage you to do this. Go ahead and ask God to uh, open up your eyes to be able to see the sources of temptation in your life that are avoidable, and you're going to see how quick God answers prayer. He might not grant that trip to Hawaii that we're all praying for, but you pray that he'll identify a source of temptation so that you can resist temptation in order to hallow or honor his name, and you just watch how quick God answers that prayer. Now, if praying for God's help with temptation didn't actually help, then Jesus wouldn't have told us to pray, God, lead me not into temptation. I think so many times we fall into temptation because we're not praying for God's help to avoid it in the first place. So friends, this will make a difference, but you got to do it for it to make a difference. Mindless repetition is useless, but so is trusting that we'll avoid temptation without praying for God's help to do so. But if we pray, God will help. All right, here's the seventh and final petition that we're to pray. And it's very much related uh, to the one we've just covered. So we pray, God, lead me not into temptation. But, but no matter how much we might try to avoid temptation on this side of eternity, there's just times where we're going to come face to face with it. And when we do, that's where the seventh petition of prayer comes into play. This is when we pray, God, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from evil. There will be times where despite our best efforts, we're going to come face to face with temptation because in many instances, the temptation is outside of our control. And it's in times like these that we pray for deliverance, that God would deliver us from this evil. And when we pray for deliverance, we can count on God's help to show us an escape route. As the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. In other words, so that you can be victorious over that temptation by escaping it. The escape route is shown when we pray for de deliverance. Again, and I know I probably sound redundant at this point, but, but I'm going to say it again very intentionally. If you think God doesn't answer prayer, next time you're tempted, pray that God will show you the way of escape, and you'll quickly see for yourself that he does answer prayer. Friends, today we've studied this teaching on prayer. We've talked about the perversion of prayer and the program of prayer, and now we've just covered the seven petitions of prayer. And what I want to say here is prayer is indeed a beautiful act of religious devotion. But it's only beautiful in God's eyes when we perform the religious act with pure motives and in the right manner. Amen. And church, we're disciples of Jesus, for those of us who are. And to be a disciple means to be a learner of the words and ways of Christ. What's the application to a sermon like this? It's simple. Jesus has uh, very clearly told us today, this then is how you should pray. So let's make sure to do it the Jesus way. I'm not up here to slam any Catholics. And if you're Catholic, we're glad you're here. But, you know, the Catholics say, dear Mary, 
dear Saint so-and-so. Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father. In, in so many ways, we, we, just, we don't do it. We don't do it God's way. We don't do it God's way. We want to do it the Jesus way. If we're a disciple of Jesus, if we're a learner of the words and ways of Jesus, the application for those of you who are disciples of Jesus is to pray as Jesus instructed. Don't do it for show. And I, and I do this sometimes. I don't know about you. Has anyone ever asked you to pray for him? And all of a sudden I'm just like, dear Lord, I just pray for this person. And I start like quoting chapter and verse as, as if God doesn't know, you know, the Bible verse or whatever. And who am I doing that for? You know? I think I'm trying to impress the person. I don't, I don't consciously think, let me impress this person, but I think there's something weird going on in my heart. We all do it. Prayer can become perverted today just as easily and quickly as it was perverted back then. Now, please don't leave here and delete your Bible app, okay? <laughs> Maybe some of you are making those posts and it's for the right reasons and none of us should be judging who's making it for the right or wrong. You've just got to do some internal uh, introspection. Why are you doing that, if you're doing that? Whose glory are you doing that for? God's, your own? What's going on in your heart? Do a little evaluation. Because if we're followers of Jesus, we want to pray with the right motive, and we want to pray in the right manner. Friends, Jesus didn't give us a prayer to recite, but he did give us a program to follow to help guide us through a meaningful time of prayer with God. If we want to hallow and honor God's name in our prayer life, then we'll do it the Jesus way. So that's the application for believers. Now, very quickly, and I'll close in prayer. If you are not a disciple of Jesus, as much as I'm eager for you to begin praying the Lord's Prayer, there's, there's another prayer that you need to pray first. And we call it the sinner's prayer. In the sinner's prayer, you can use your own words. There's no right or wrong way to do it. But the sinner's prayer is the prayer that makes you have right standing with God. In the sinner's prayer, you say something along these lines. God, I understand that my sin has separated me from you. And God, I thank you for sending Jesus to remove the barrier of sin. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sins. Thank you for putting the punishment that my sins deserve on Jesus so that your justice could be satisfied, yet in your mercy I could go free. God, I'm asking you for forgiveness of sins today. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of my sins. Through Jesus, God, I want to have right standing with you. And friends, when you and I do this, it's awesome what happens. Our sin is credited to Jesus' account, and it's retroactively punished on his cross 2,000 years ago. And at the same time that happens, Jesus' very own righteousness is credited to our account and we now have right standing with God. We are justified. In God's eyes, it's justified, never sinned. So today we've taught on the Lord's Prayer, this prayer that we've covered, given by our Lord Jesus. But before we're ready to say the Lord's Prayer as a disciple, we first need to say the sinner's prayer to become a disciple in the first place. And if you've never done that, it would be my greatest privilege and honor to lead you in just such a prayer as we end our time together now. For those of you online, everyone here in person, if you'd like to pray, would you bow your head? Maybe you'd close your eyes and maybe you'd say something along these lines to God. Say, Heavenly Father, please forgive me of my sins. Please accept what Jesus endured on the cross as payment for my sins. I wanna have right standing with you today. 
So God, today I, I very, with a grateful heart, God, a very grateful heart, I receive your free gift of eternal life. And I invite Jesus to become the new leader of my life. And as prayer now becomes a central part of my life, God, help me to do it the Jesus way. For the right motive and in the right manner, without hypocrisy. I ask for your help and I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. If you've been blessed by what you heard, you can give a one-time or reoccurring gift at newdaychurch.cc forward slash giving or text any amount on your smartphone right now to 84321. We would love to connect with you even more. So be sure to like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram. And don't forget to find us on the Church Center app for more information about all things New Day. May God bless you and we hope to see you again soon.